Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm here with Dr. Steve Stewart Williams. He is Associate Professor of Psychology at Nottingham University, Malaysia campus. His research revolves around the idea that theories from evolutionary biology can shed light on human psychology. In particular, he is interested in the evolutionary origins of altruistic behavior and human sex differences. He also has a long-standing interest in the philosophical implications of evolutionary theory. And finally, is also the author of books like Darwin, God and the Meaning of Life, and more recently, The Ape That Understood the Universe. So, Dr. Stuart Williams, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. You're very welcome, Ricardo. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, so it's interesting that in your most recent book, that will be the main subject of our discussion today, uh, you really make the case to going back to the basics of evolutionary theory and evolutionary biology. And so I guess that we could start off by uh, discussing a little bit the question surrounding the unit and the levels of selection in, in natural selection, right? Because, I mean, sometimes the discussion gets a little difficult because uh, uh, particularly since Richard Dawkins wrote The Selfish Gene, it seems that people have been putting a lot of emphasis on the gene being the unit of selection instead of the individual or the kin or the group. But what would you have to say about that? What is important for us to know about that question? Uh, well, I think if we're talking about um, we're talking about sort of long-term adaptive evolution, there is quite a good reason to put uh, puts puts that emphasis on the gene, and to consider the gene to be sort of the main unit of selection. Uh, the main reason to do that, I think, uh, is that uh, when it comes to when it comes to reproduction uh, and, and evolution, the gene is the thing that's that's getting copied. Genes get copied, right? So genes, different gene variants can increase in frequency or they can decrease in frequency. They can be selected or selected against. Now, that's not the case with individuals and that's not the case with groups. So, so individuals don't literally copy themselves. They don't make replicas of themselves. Uh, likewise with groups, they don't copy themselves. Ecosystems, species, they don't make copies of themselves. They're Obviously, they're affected by natural selection, but I think it's mm -hmm. fair to say that it's primarily natural selection of genes sort of in effect indirectly affects uh, individuals, indirectly affects uh, groups. So, so I think for that reason, it's, uh, the gene is, it's good to think of the gene as the unit of selection. And I think it ties in as well uh, with the idea that, um, that the traits are selected to the extent that they're, they're good for the genes that help give rise to those traits. Okay, so the um, natural selection favors genes that, in effect, look after themselves and, and promote their own uh, continuance in the gene pool. Um, so that's uh, what that means is that traits are selected that are not necessarily good for the individual. Now, now often they are. So they're, they're good for the individual in terms of their reproductive success. Genes can be selected for that reason. Sometimes, though, you'll get traits that, um, that are not good for the individual, that uh, instead, you know, the individual might uh, help its offspring. 
or might help uh, other, other close relatives or even more distant relatives. Uh, it might help them even at a cost to itself. So it's not for the good of the, the individual in terms of reproductive success, it's for the good of other individuals. What's the common denominator? I think it's the fact that it's, it's for the good of the genes that underpin the traits in question. So that's another reason. Um, if selection happens at the, at the level of the group, that's a big if, but if it does, um, then I think that involves the selection of genes as well. So genes that give rise to group beneficial traits, mm -hmm. th those genes are only going to proliferate if the group beneficial traits um, are better for the gene than competing, competing alleles that are less good uh, for the group. So, so again, it ultimately, I think, comes down to the level of the gene, um, and I think for the, those are the reasons I'd say that it's best to think of the gene as the unit of selection. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the gene as the unit of selection, but do you agree with multi-level selection theory? That is, that selection occurs at several different levels, like, for example, the gene, the individual, uh, the kin, and, uh, of course, you already maybe, maybe referred briefly to the group, and that's a bit... A contentious, a bit uh, contentious topic, but do you agree with that? That we can really look at it at occurring at several different levels. Uh, yes, yes, and no. I think probably I wouldn't say I'm a, an advocate of multi-level selection, just because I think that that ultimately it does come down to the selection of groups. Now, um, that can take place at the level of, of individuals, so. Uh, if it's good for the individual, the genes might be selected. If it's good for the group, maybe the genes might be selected. But again, I think the genes, just because the genes are the, the unit of heredity and therefore they're the, the things that can increase or decrease in frequency, for that reason, they do have to be considered somewhat special. And so I don't really agree with the, the strand of, of multi-level selection theory that says that genes are one level, individuals are another level, the group is another level, they're, they're all on equal footing. I think that even though you do get selection sort of at the level of the individual or the group, that ultimately does boil down to selection among genes. Mm -hmm. Yes, and even when we're talking about, for example, kin selection, it stems from genetic relatedness, right? That is, there are uh, that are there are the same, uh, copies of the same gene in different individuals, and uh, there's also where uh, altruism stems from, pri uh, primarily. Right. Indeed, yeah. Well, kin altruism, anyway, yeah. So, so a very important category of, of altruism does come from that. It does come from the fact that genes are being advantaged by this individual level alt altruism. Um, now, you could say, right, you could say that it's for the good of the individual at the level of inclusive fitness. So inclusive fitness is more than just sort of uh, Darwinian fitness. Darwinian fitness is just reproductive success, but inclusive fitness includes that, but it also includes the individual's contribution to the reproductive success of kin, which is what you're talking about, right? So it includes both of those things, inclusive fitness. Uh, but even then, I'd say the really, really inclusive fitness is another way of just saying that it's, it's ultimately for the good of the genes that, that certain uh, traits get selected. And I'd, I'd add to that that... Um, there are cases where you get genes that come along that can be selected that actually don't benefit the inclusive fitness of the individual. So there are, for instance, there are what are called segregation distorted genes. So these are genes that they, they come along. Now, now, most genes, right, they have a 50-50 chance of being uh, copied into any offspring that's produced. Segregation distorted genes are kind of outlaw genes. They come along, they cheat the system, and they, they have effects that make it more likely than 50-50 that they'll get into the, any offspring that, that gets produced. Uh, that benefits them. Obviously, they're going to be selected over competing alleles. But 
um, that can happen even if it has no effect at all on the inclusive fitness of the organism. And in some cases, it, it can actually be disadvantageous to the inclusive fitness of the, of the organism, which suggests, I think, that that actually the, the, this genes eye view, this is, what, this is what we're talking about, the genes eye view of evolution, it's actually more accurate than, than the inclusive fitness, fitness picture, just because it, it explains everything the inclusive fitness can explain. So uh, stuff that benefits the self, stuff that, stuff that benefits kin, but it can also explain things that the inclusive fitness theory cannot explain, uh, such as segregation distorted genes, selfish genetic elements, uh, and the like. Mm-hmm. And just to make this point clear, when we talk about reciprocal altruism as proposed first by Robert Rivers, I think, um, w- w- does it have any influence in how we look at uh, the levels of selection or not? Um, well, in terms of uh, inclusive fitness theory, that would be at the level of, of direct um, direct fitness. So that um, is advantaging the individual rather than rather than kin. Um, you can construe it in terms of multi-level selection. So some folks have um, they've done that instead of construing it in terms of inclusive fitness, you can think of reciprocal altruism in terms of groups, i.e., a two-person group, like two individuals as they're reciprocating. In that moment of time, we consider them to be a group that's doing better than uh, non-reciprocating groups. Um, that does work. The mathematics of that um, work. I personally, I don't think it's as intuitive a way to, uh, to construe things. I think usually we think of groups as being sort of relatively distinct, like geographic, geographically delineated uh, clusters of individuals, rather than just sort of a two-person group while you're reciprocating and then th- that individual goes away and suddenly there's another two-person group here while we're reciprocating. And, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And about cultural selection, I mean, should we deal with culture as being something separate from our biology and that operates in parallel with it and that even adds another level of selection or sh- should, I mean, how should we deal with culture in this picture of how it might uh, uh, the interplay it might have with biological evolution? Um, well, I think that we do have to think of biological evolution and cultural evolution as separate things, separate processes. They do interact with one another, but they are conceptually distinct. So, And the main distinction is that when you, when you talk about biological evolution um, you talk and adaptive evolution, you're talking primarily about uh, selection among competing gene variants, whereas... When you're talking about cultural evolution, you're talking about uh, selection among cultural variants. So some some cultural or memes, if you like. So some cultural variants do better and better than um, and are selected within the culture. Some disappear from the culture, um, and they have ups, ups and downs, etc. But but the key thing is that we're talking about different things. So like some of the factors that shape biological evolution um, are similar to the ones that shape cultural. Uh, cultural evolution, there's, there's some uh, sort of blind selection going on in both cases. Some of the factors are different. There's, there's a lot, I think in cultural evolution, there's a lot more uh, deliberate creation and, and deliberate direction going on than in biological evolution. Um, but, e- but even if the factors were absolutely identical, that the factors that shape biological versus cultural evolution, even if they were identical, I think it would still... Uh, make sense to separate the two and to consider them separately just because we're talking about the evolution of different entities. We're talking about the evolution of biological entities versus uh, cultural stuff. Those are different things. Now, they do, they certainly interact with each other in important ways. So, so if culture, for instance, has to 
sort of evolve to mesh with human nature and, uh, you know, like cuisines, for instance, have to evolve to push the right buttons in terms of the kind of foods that we like. Um, stories, uh, movies, art, art forms, things like that, uh, they have to be about stuff that humans are naturally interested in, right? Like, like love and betrayal and, and, and aggression and, and that kind of stuff rather than, I, I don't know, wallpaper and... Um, and, and rocks and pebbles and things. You know, we're more naturally interested in some things than others. Cultural evolution has to mesh with human nature, our evolved nature in that way. And of course, you also get another kind of very important kind of long-term interaction, which is gene culture co-evolution. So certain sort of long-standing cultural uh, elements uh, can, can if, they're, if, they're, if they persist for long enough, they can create selection pressures that can then change our actual biological nature. Classic example, as I'm sure you know, is, is the evolution of uh, lactose tolerance uh, in populations that had a long history of um, of living with, with dairying animals, and they sort of start drinking the milk. Uh, once they, once they have this milk and they're drinking it, creates a selection pressure uh, for an ability to digest the the lactase uh, in milk uh, to, to recreate lactase, so you can sorry so you can digest the lactose in milk, the the, the sugar in milk, uh, and get therefore get more nutrition out of out of the milk, and, and that's happened in various different. Um, populations that, that have a long history of doing that, gene culture co-evolution. Mm -hmm. And uh, to get into gene culture co-evolution, I mean, their culture also has to have a part in our environment, that is, it has to turn into another environmental pressure that acts also on our genes and our biological evolution. So, is there, was there any point in our evolutionary history where we can really say that we passed a, a certain threshold where culture really started to be part of the environment? It's tricky, right? Um, I guess in a certain sense there must be. Um, so, so, I mean, you're right that the culture is not just part of the environment. It's actually it's one of the most important parts of our environment, I would say. It has been for quite a long time. Uh, and I guess there must have been some kind of transition because at one stage, if you trace it back far enough, there were animals uh, that, that we that ultimately um, evolved into us that basically didn't have culture. And then somewhere along the line, and, and now we do. Now we've got tons and tons of stuff. Culture coming out of our, out of our ears. And somehow we got from, from point A to, to point B where we are now. Um, it would be impossible, I think, to pinpoint a moment where that transition happened. It's like, like everything in evolution, it's easy to say, here's point A, here's point B. These are clearly distinct. Somewhere in the middle, though, there must have been indeterminate stages where, where it's just difficult to say whether we're a cultural animal or not in these intermediate stages um, between the clear stages of definitely no culture, definitely tons of culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right, because, I mean, it's a bit difficult because also to be able to create culture, we had to go through an evolutionary process where we acquired the necessary cognitive tools. And so even what we were able to create, I mean, it must have been some sort of point in our evolutionary history where we could say, okay, now we really already have the... Uh, the set of cognitive tools necessary to really create uh, kinds of culture that distinguish us from other animals because there are also other particularly primates that also show uh, at least incipient forms of culture, correct? 
That is correct. Yeah. So, so chimpanzees, for instance, um, have have various traditions. Um, I think it's fair to say they have culture because they have not just one or two traditions, but just a bunch of traditions. Uh, likewise, orangutans and and um, uh, gorillas, I think, and, and capuchin monkeys. Uh, songbirds have some um, certainly have traditions. I don't know. You know, people might vary in terms of whether they say that those are cultural animals, but they certainly have traditions. Whales do as well. Uh, you know, lots of animals do. So there must have been some points. I wouldn't say there's a point. I'd say there were probably multiple points where, where okay. different kind of cognitive faculties that make that make culture as we know it today possible. We're just sort of slowly coming online and being fine-tuned. And yeah, just just over. Well, I mean, because we share it with so many other species, it must trace back, I would say, a long, long way. So over, over millions of years and perhaps accelerating over the last few hundred thousand years. Mm -hmm. And uh, what really distinguishes our ability to create culture from a culture that occurs in other animals? Would it be the fact that uh, there's really a great distance in terms of our ability to accumulate culture and the ways by which we are able to evolve culture in comparison with other animals? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I would. I think that's probably the big thing, the, the really big difference, um, is that we do have this cumulative cultural evolution. Um, we, uh, I don't know, the, the example I, I like to use often is if you think about Plato and Aristotle, um, the, these great geniuses of the ancient world, um, I'm sure that uh, they were probably vastly more intelligent in terms of just their raw processing ability, vastly more intelligent than, than the vast majority of people living today. Uh, the vast majority of people living today, though, have a much more accurate picture. Of, of the universe than um, did those the, the greatest of these ancient uh, Greek scholars. Um, kids even have a, have a more accurate picture of, of the universe just because they know that we're living on a spinning ball that's going around this great big ball of fire. Um, Plato and Aristotle didn't know that. Uh, it's not that our species has evolved to be smart, smarter. We're basically the same animal that we were back then. It's purely a result of the fact that we have this capacity to stockpile knowledge and to, to kind of pass it down, pass it down through the generations, and we can tinker with it, and we can uh, fine-tune it over time. That's the big difference. Now, it's been argued that um, chimpanzees probably have a little bit of cumulative culture. Uh, so their, their ability, their very famous uh, cultural tradition of, of taking a couple of rocks, uh, put put a rock, uh, put sorry, put a, put a nut uh, in its shell on top of one rock and then crack it open very gently enough that you can open it up without smashing the whole thing. That's one of their more impressive cultural traditions. Um, probably didn't evolve all in, in one step, like one sort of genius Einstein chimpanzee suddenly invented the whole thing from nothing. Um, Franz de Waal and others have argued that it, there were probably a few stages along the way to get in that tradition. So maybe a little bit of cumulative culture in some other uh, species. But even that, it's just nothing, nothing no, nowhere near on the scale of what you see in, in our species. It's just a vast accumulation of all sorts of different cultural traditions in, in our lineage. Mm -hmm. And that's also why in humans there are people that talk about dual inheritance theory, right? That is that we inherit our genes, particularly from our parents, but also uh, the culture that is part of our group in this case, right? Uh, yeah, sorry, say, say it again. Was that the extended phenotype that you say? Uh, not exactly. I was referring to dual inheritance theory. That is that we inherit both our uh, genes and also the culture that is part of the group we live in. 
Oh, I see. Okay, yeah, the jewel inheritance. So the two sort of co-evolving yeah, along yeah, with each other. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that jewel inheritance theory. Um, is one. Of, so the, the big chapter I have on um, uh, on cultural evolution draws heavily on, on dual inheritance theory. The work of, uh, of course, uh, Rob Boyd and, and Pete Richardson initially, and then and work of other uh, individuals, Joseph Heinrich and Richard McElrath. It's good stuff, right? So um, the idea that we have sort of learning biases that kind of lead us to gravitate toward uh, adaptive memes, if you like. Um, I think they wouldn't like that, by the way. I don't think they, <laughs> like the, they, they don't like the term meme, but I, I do quite like the whole meme right there, and, and so I'm happy to happy to use that term. We gravitate toward more adaptive cultural variants, though, if you, if you prefer. Um, gene culture co-evolution. Also, uh, cultural group selection they talk about. I think we possibly have some of that going on uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's interesting because... Uh, at the cultural level, uh, we can really say that we have group selection occurring. I think it's definitely possible. Yeah, like I'm not 100% convinced that that it happens, but I do think it's plausible. I think it's a lot more plausible uh, than genetic group selection, um, just because of the fact that I think with, with uh, biological evolution, uh, individuals can reproduce uh, just a lot more quickly than groups can. And so you just have much more rapid uh, individual level selection uh, operating on genes. Um, but, it's, but it's a bit different with culture. You can get, I think, get cultural group selection happening much more, much more quickly. Mm-hmm. And do you think that uh, then a culture, uh, would, uh, what would it really do? A culture would piggyback uh, on, our bio- on, on the biological basis that we have to establish uh, reciprocal relationships with other people and expand our group identities or something like that? I think it does some of that. I think it probably does a lot of things. Um, I think it piggybacks on all sorts of different adaptations. Um, And I tend to think that just probably, in some sense, just the basic capacity for culture in a very general sense um, is adaptive. Uh, for, for human beings, or, or it certainly was, particularly was when, when it first evolved. It was adaptive. That's why, uh, like in a sense, it, it must have been, right? For it to evolve in the first place, it must have, at least on average, uh, enhanced people's inclusive fitness um, as, as it was evolving. I think it's a good case to be made that having evolved, it's kind of such an open-ended system that they can piggyback on so many other different things, different aspects of human nature. Um, it's a good case to be made that it's kind of come off the genetic leash, and so we get the, the evolution of cultural stuff that is not necessarily adaptive. Okay, so some 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 stuff clearly is. It's adaptive for the individuals. Some stuff might be adaptive at the group level. But there's plenty of stuff that I think uh, that evolves, which is not adaptive for either the individual or the group, and it really just sort of sticks around in the culture purely because it's good at sticking around. It's it's catchy or it's um, just sort of contagious in some way that even if it's not good for us, we, we want to keep it uh, in the culture. Hmm. And in fact, we don't even necessarily want to keep it in the culture, but it sticks around anyway. Like, so like the classic example, right, is, is airworms. So really, really catchy tunes that we get stuck in our minds and they keep going on and on and on in our minds and, and we don't want them. And um, But they do, they get stuck and they get stuck. They're, they're little cultural variants that um, not good for us, not good for the group. They're just good for themselves. They, they perpetuate themselves in our minds. We whistle them and other, or hum them or whatever, and other people pick them up, and then they have them on their minds and they, they spread. 
Okay, so now let's move on to another topic, because I mean, when people think about evolution, uh, the first thing that comes to mind is natural selection, but there's another thing, another phenomenon that also occurs in sexually reproducing species, that is sexual selection, and even Darwin already talked a little bit about this. So, could you tell us what is the importance that sexu uh, sexual selection has for us to better understand our evolutionary history and particularly how our psychological traits evolved? Yeah, so sexual selection um, is usually viewed as a, as a form of natural selection. But it's um, it's uh, selection for instead of survival, selection for for traits that enhance reproductive success. Um, usually, either through uh, attracting mates or through um, outperforming and outcompeting same-sex rivals. So those those are the two sort of aspects. Um, and Darwin did he said quite a lot about it. In fact, he sort of introduced the idea, and and later on, after quite a big gap where people didn't talk, biologists didn't talk about it that much. Some of them, uh, Trivers, Robert Trivers, for instance, uh, picked up the ball and kept running with that sexual selection uh, ball. Very, very important um, selection pressure in terms of, of shaping our species, shaping average differences between the sexes uh, as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, and before we get into sex differences, in your book at a certain point you say that reproduction is more important than survival in evolution. Could, could you explain that? Yeah, sure. So, so I think a lot of people think that, that evolution is about the survival of the fittest. Okay, so that's a phrase came originally from uh, the philosopher Herbert Spencer. Uh, Darwin picked it up uh, later on in his life. Survival of the fittest, sort of emphasis on survival. Um, but actually, if you imagine, if you imagine an organism that came along and it lived for a thousand years, or it lived for ten thousand years, or a hundred thousand years, if it never um, had any offspring or uh, passed on its genes in any kind of way, then the instant that that individual, as good as it was at surviving, the instant that it died, its genes would be wiped off the off the face of the planet. So basically, if you um, survival, no matter how long you survive, um, if you want your genes to go forward, you have to uh, act in certain ways that, that make the genes go forward, the most common of which is to, is to reproduce, although you can also help close relatives to reproduce as well. Um, so the reason, so, so survival is important. So you do have to survive for long enough to pass on your genes, um, but survival isn't uh, like an, an end in itself in evolutionary terms. Um, it's a means to another end, that end is passing on one's genes. The most common way that that's done um, by most organisms, ourselves included, is by having offspring. So you survive for long enough to have offspring. And in fact, those, those two things, survival and reproduction, they trade off against each other to some degree with, with reproduction often trumping survival. Um, classic example would be the, the peacock's tail. Um, the peacock's tail is, is it's huge, colorful, ornately patterned tail that the, that the males of the species um, sport, and then they walk around with these great tails. Um, the tails, if anything, they, they decrease their survival prospects because they're, they're very, very costly to grow. They just like a huge beacon that attracts predators to come along. And also when those predators do come along, um, it's very, very hard for the peacock to escape because it's got this massive, pointless, well, apparently pointlessly um, large, pretty tail that it's lugging with it. Um, and the reason, though, that it was selected is because it's not actually pointless. It, it doesn't help survival, but um, it does help reproductive success. The reason being that uh, peahens prefer to mate with males that have larger, more colorful, more um, 
ornately patterned uh, tails. So it boosts reproductive success at a cost to survival. And that sort of demonstrates the point that it's, uh, that it's not actually survival, but it's actually reproductive success or, or some other way of passing on one's genes that counts uh, in evolutionary terms. Mm-hmm. Okay, and what are the biological bases for sex differences, particularly in humans? Because we've already talked about sexual selection here, uh, and I mean, uh, sh where should we start off from? Should we go back to physiological differences in terms of reproduction at the level of the gametes, that is, uh, eggs being more costly to produce than sperm, and men produce producing much more sperm than uh, women do eggs during their lifetime? Or should we start with parental investment theory? Where exactly? Um, well, I think we need to go beyond the sex cells, um, the gametes, that, the sperm and eggs, um, except for the, the simplest animals, uh, which just um, don't provide any other form of parental investment. Uh, for them, you can, you can understand sex differences in terms of sperm and egg, but for um, most species, if they provide any more uh, parental investment, you have, to, you have to look at that. So, so it was based the, the, um, the idea that it all comes down to gametes, that sex difference comes down to the gametes. Uh, that was Bateman's idea uh, back in uh, 1948. Um, but that was kind of trumped by the work of Trevers in, in 1972, his parental investment theory, and then subsequent kind of um, refinements of that theory by folks like Clutton Brock and, and Vincent. Um, I think the clearest way, so, so parental investment is really important, but I think the clearest way to capture the idea, in my view, uh, is in terms of the, the max, like sex differences and the maximum number of offspring that each sex can produce. Um, so on average, the, the number of offspring that each sex can produce has to be about the same in, in a, a species with a 50-50 roughly males and females has the average has to be the same but the the spread the variance can be greater for one sex or the other uh, such that the maximum number can be higher for one sex or the other and usually where you get that kind of difference which you often do usually it's the males that can have the higher maximum number of offspring um, and where that's the case it creates a whole bunch of different selection pressures on the males than it does on on the females uh, because they potentially like it like Males potentially have tons and tons of offspring, so it creates a selection pressure, for instance, for them to um, to try to do so. So if you imagine, uh, okay, so, so imagine a like typical mammalian species. You have uh, females who, as well as providing the egg, the egg, the egg is the, in effect the least of their, their worries when they're, in terms of parental investment. Um, they, they get pregnant, they have to carry the offspring, uh, they have to go through the, the physical trauma of, of giving birth to the offspring, they then have to nurse it for, for a period of time as well. Um, that's what f female mammals do. Uh, the males, on the other hand, um, obviously have to do very much less than that. Um, that sort of minimum investment of a, of a male mammal is much, much less. And so you can imagine that, that with, with mammals in general, humans as well, if you imagine that um, um, if, if a male were to mate with, I don't, I don't know, say five females in the course of a single year, potentially he could have five, five offspring or five litters of offspring from each of the different females. Um, but if, on the other hand, a female were to mate with uh, five different males, um, she's probably going to have no more offspring than she would if she'd only mated with one within, within that year period or within a, a reproductive cycle. So there's a stronger selection pressure on males um, typically to seek out multiple mates, for instance, stronger on males than on females. Um, the prize is bigger for males who have multiple mates, so there's more competition within, uh, like among males, 
uh, between themselves um, to to win that prize. So you have uh, so the greater competition among them and more aggression among them and more of a tendency to, to take risks among the males. Um, now this does happen in humans as well, and I think um, you know people listening to this are going to recognise that there are tendencies in that direction. Not just in non-human mammals, but in our species as well. I think it's fair to say that the differences in our species are somewhat smaller than is the case in probably most mammals. They're somewhat smaller because, you know, although the minimum amount of investment uh, in offspring for for human males is much lower than the minimum for females to produce one offspring, uh, the typical amount is somewhat higher. And that reduces the gap in terms of the, the sort of maximum number of offspring that males can produce versus females. Um, by reducing that, it reduces the magnitude of the sex differences to some degree. Um, they're certainly still there, though. It is certainly still the case that, on average, that males are more interested in casual sex and sexual variety than our females, that they're more aggressive on average uh, than our females, and so on. Mm-hmm. And is it also the case that in humans, in comparison with other mammals, we have more parental investment uh, investment by males because uh, human infants also go through longer periods of dependency. And so if they weren't to really invest a lot on their offspring, perhaps their reproductive success, even if they were to impregnate several females, would drop because the children wouldn't survive. Is, is yeah. that something like that? I think that I think that probably is the reason that we have um, sort of atypically high levels of male parental investment uh, in our species. A- atypical for for mammals. Um, I think it's exactly that. I think it's the fact that that our infants are born in like a really really helpless, com- completely dependent state, and they stay in that state for quite a few years, and then even after that, they take a lot longer to reach like nutritional independence mm-hmm. than do the young of I think pretty much any other species. Um, they take even in like a relatively uh, traditional society they can take roughly 18 years 20 years something like that you know even in, even in a hunter-gatherer society or a hunter-gatherer or horticulturalist society so so for both of those reasons it takes just a lot of investment to create a new human like, like a, a lot more than uh, a single uh, female by herself could uh, achieve um, so for that reason yeah in our species we seem to have really high levels of uh, what's called allo maternal care so that's care from not just from males but just from individuals other than the female herself and most species most most mammals the female alone she can do the, she can do it that's the case of chimps and, and you know even relative, even uh, individuals as close as chimps um, not the case for us though so you get uh, various different individuals pitching in to look after the kids grandmothers uh, usually particularly maternal grandmothers um, aunts grand aunts sisters friends of the mother etc etc but also often males also often the father in particular um, very commonly invests doesn't invest um, on average as much as as females do across cultures um, but but it's very very common for for the males of, of human beings to uh, uh, to invest in the young and I think that is the reason that we evolved to form sort of relatively durable pairs bonds for males to have a capacity to you know in effect fall in love with their kids and want to look after their kids and that kind of thing and and uh, simultaneously reducing the size of, of some of the sex differences in our species as compared to what you see in, in other mammals 
Mm-hmm. Yes, but because even from a strictly biological perspective and from a perspective of biological evolution, uh, for for a particular individual to be successful, it is not only important for him or her to be able to survive until a reproductive age and to reproduce, but also to make sure that its offspring survives and yep. also reproduces, right? Exactly right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So now to get a little bit more specifically into uh, uh, sex or sexual psychological traits or sex differences between men and women in terms of their psychological traits. Okay. So I guess that one difficulty that we have here when we talk about this issue is that people tend to separate sex from gender or the strictly physical traits from the psychological slash behavioral ones. But should we really go that way? I mean, aren't psychological traits also part of our phenotype? Yeah, they are. And I think I'm not a huge fan of the distinction between sex and and gender um, for a few reasons. One is, uh, well, there are a number of different definitions. Uh, apply to gender uh, for a start. So sometimes uh, it just means like gender roles of a, of a culture. That's what they're referring to. So um, so the fact that, for instance, in the 1950s in the West, um, women didn't typically go to work, especially once they got married, whereas now the norm is, is completely flipped and they typically do go to work um, when they're married. That sort of uh, would be an example of a gender role, society's gender roles. It's not what it always means, though, when people talk about gender. So often they are talking about psychology, and when they talk about gender differences, there's an implication that it's what, what I would call sex differences, but there's an implication that it's all down to culture. So they might say, so sex differences, when you talk about sex, you're talking about biology. When you talk about gender, you're talking about culture. Um, and I don't think that's a good way to, to think about it, really, uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one is that the kind of differences that we're talking about, when we're talking about, say, differences between men and women on average in terms of aggression, say. Um, that's affected by, by nature and by nurture. It's both. Um, and so if you want to say that's a gender, so, so you can't really say it's a gender difference. And if you insist on the distinction between gender differences and sex differences, it's, it's neither, right? Or, or if you like, it's both. So it's part gender difference and part sex difference, which is a really awkward way to construe it. Um, I think it's like a, a better way to construe it would be to say, just to talk about that we have these differences that are correlated with biological sex um, and in labeling it that way to, you, in the label itself just be neutral about the origins of those in terms of nature versus nurture and having said we have these differences correlated with biological sex we can then sort out so to what extent is it nature to what extent is it nurture it's not going to be one or the other and, and it's ironic actually so this this distinction between gender differences and sex differences sort of implies like a complete like a quite extreme uh, nature-nurture dichotomy, which I just don't think applies to, if it applies to any traits, it applies to very, very few traits. So I think instead we can talk about sex differences, we can say, for instance, there are sex differences that are largely nature, like uh, the sex difference in terms of which sex people are sexually attracted to. There are sex differences which are much, much closer to the nurture end of the spectrum. I would put in that category uh, the fact that Boys might be dressed up in blue, girls in pink. You know, some folks have argued that there's actually a, some biological contribution to that. It doesn't strike me as particularly plausible that there is, but um, 
but maybe there's a little bit better. I think it, either way, it's, I think it's probably uncontroversial to say that that's a lot further toward the, the nurture end of the spectrum. Most differences, though, are going to be a combination of, of both. So I don't think it's appropriate to try to divide things into sex differences and gender differences. They're all uh, a little a mixture of both of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, and as we were talking about earlier, when we talked about uh, biology and culture and the interplay between them, I mean, uh, even when you were referring to right now uh, to girls wearing pink and boys wearing blue, I mean, p perhaps that, that's something that comes from culture, but even things that come from culture, I mean, they only turn into culture because something in our innate cognitive systems is able to process those kinds of informations in a biologically plausible way, something like that, right? Um, true, but I mean, I guess that, that some aspects of culture are more arbitrary than others. So mm -hmm. there are certain names that, that are given to boys more often than girls. And I think in most cases, it's just arbitrary. It could have just as well have gone the other way around. So I noticed that. So, so like uh, living here in Malaysia, um, like a lot of the students at the university, um, they're from other cultures. They're, they're Chinese or they're Malay. And when I was sort of first encountering some of the, the first names, I couldn't really tell. But before I met the person, I couldn't really tell which were male names and which were female names. So I think there is some arbitrariness uh, in to, you know, some things just seem to be linked to male biological sex and female biological sex just completely arbitrarily and could, could just as easily have gone the other way around. Mm -hmm. Okay. And in that sense, would you say that gender and because when people use the word gender, they immediately create a dichotomy there between what is strictly uh, biologically sex and uh, something that happens at the level of culture, would you say that that term is even scientifically useful, also because of the huge and complicated interplay that we have between culture and biology? Um, I, think, I think probably not. I think probably not because, partly because of the vagueness of, uh, in the, of the way that the term is used, partly because of the fact that it seems to rest on a strict you know, you can divide things into nature or nurture, which um, almost it's almost never the case. So I think for both of those reasons, it's not particularly useful. I, I tend to, I, you know, I'm not averse to saying gender, but I tend to use it uh, 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 when I'm talking about gender differences. I'm using it as synonymous uh, with sex differences. I guess one other meaning we haven't touched on already of, of what gender can mean is it can refer to people's sense of themselves as being male or female. Right. Um, and people do have that kind of sense. And sometimes it mismatches with, uh, you know, their, their biological, like their anatomical uh, structure. So I think because they do have that sense, you know, we need a term for it to be able to discuss it. I think probably calling gender identity is clearer. So that you're not, we're not using the same single word uh, for multiple different things. So gender identity, I think, is more useful to use that. Mm -hmm. And what would you say are perhaps the main flaws uh, when we try to explain sex differences purely from a sociological or sociocultural perspective? Um, I think the main flaw with that, with explaining it 100%, so, so let me just be, be clear at that I do think that 
sociological and sociocultural explanations are, are important and they, they're an important piece of the puzzle. Um, that they're, uh, they're people who looked at those kind of things come up with plenty of good insights. But, but with your question, right, you're asking if we just want to explain everything in terms of sociocultural factors, what's the main problem there? And I think it's simple. I think the, the main problem with it is just that it's simply not the case that the difference, the sex differences we're talking about are just purely product of, of social cultural forces. So that's the main thing. It's just not true. It's not the case. Um, how do we know it's not the case? Um, with sex differences, there are various sort of converging lines of evidence that suggest not that it's all down to nurture. Uh, sorry, not that it's all down to nature. They suggest, though, that, it's, that nature's part of it. It's not all down to nurture, in other words. So, for instance, you have evidence of cross-cultural universality. Of, of certain kinds of sex differences. Um, if there was no innate contribution here, if it was all down to culture, I think you would expect even more uh, variation across cultures than you actually see. Um, there's evidence that certain sex differences persist even in the face of quite strong social pressure to eradicate them. Uh, there's evidence that um, certain sex differences, uh, well, certain traits that we're talking about like interest in casual sex, sex drive, uh, aggression, parental inclinations, these kind of things uh, correlate with prenatal hormonal levels. Uh, testosterone, for instance, is linked with these uh, sort of stereotypically male traits. Um, lower levels are, are linked with stereotypically female traits, uh, parenting, parenting and the like, uh, within each sex. And then, of course, you have the average difference in uh, prenatal and, and postnatal um, hormonal levels uh, between the sexes. Um, and then one of the, I think, quite important line of evidence that it's not all just nurture um, is the fact that you see sex differences similar to the ones that you see in humans. You see them as well in other animals. You don't see them in every other species, but um, importantly, you see them in, in other species that resemble us in evolutionarily relevant ways. So specifically, you see them in species uh, where the maximum number of offspring is higher for the males than for the females. And then the sort of cluster of sex differences that we have, um, you know, you find them clustered together across species that have that, that difference in maximum sex difference and maximum offspring number. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's interesting because you referred to at a certain point there uh, to cross cross cultural variation, and if some uh, something was to be explained pu purely on cultural terms, then it we would probably get much a uh, much higher variation among cultures and things like that. But I mean th that's another interesting point because uh, culture uh, and cultural variation also doesn't occur occur randomly, right? It tends to follow certain uh, predictable uh, tracts, let's say. Uh, uh, b because, uh, I mean, what I want to say here is, is probably that um, th there are, when people look at different cultures, cultures that are different from their own, it's much easier for us to see the differences and yep. uh, do not really see the similarities. But when we really employ scientifically rigorous methods to really study human behavior in our own culture and in other cultures, we get a lot of human universals, right? That is right, yeah. So, I mean, there is a mix of universals and, and differences among among cultures. But I guess you do get universals. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you're right. So, so, not all universals are necessarily going to be uh, a product of, of natural selection. You could have some sort of game theoretical stuff where you get universals just because 
there are certain ways to organize societies that, that are the only ways to do it. Um, you will have societies, for instance, where you'll have um, cars driving on the left-hand side of the road, others where they're driving on the right-hand side of the road, but you won't be able to have uh, a culture that has uh, cars in any significant numbers where you don't have either one of those two rules. Right? And that's not because there's an innate tendency to choose one of those two rules. Um, it's just because it's the only way to organize a society that has a significant number of cars. You have to, you have to choose one of those options. So, so yeah, I do agree that um, you can get universals that are not direct products of, of natural selection. Uh, and the evidence across cultural universality, I guess, is, is suggestive um, of an innate contribution, you know, in the case of sex differences and, and kin altruism, that kind of thing. Doesn't, by itself, doesn't clinch the deal. I think what does make it um, a whole bunch more um, plausible uh, that, that these things do have an evolutionary origin is that it's not just the cross-cultural um, universality. It's these multiple different lines of evidence, including cross-species evidence, hormonal evidence, uh, evidence that these things survive even in the face of, of social pressure pushing them in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we've been we've been criticizing here uh, purely or pure socio-cultural approaches to sex differences, but I also I also wanted to talk with you about uh, something a uh, piece of work that you've done with Andrew Thomas, who, who I've already had on the show about. Uh, okay, I will put it this way, and if I say something wrong, please correct me. That uh, it is still very prevalent in evolutionary psychology to use the model of males compete and females choose to talk about uh, human mating behavior. But uh, you, uh, you, together with Andrew Thomas, proposed that perhaps the best model is, at least in humans, the one of mutual mate choice. So could you tell us about that? Yeah, um, so, so that's basically right. So um, there's, a sort of, there's a model of sexual selection that, um, that says that males compete, females choose. Uh, that does apply to, to a lot of species, right? So peacocks, for instance, talked about earlier, uh, the males compete with each other with their, um, with their extravagant displays. Uh, the females choose from among the males on offer. Um, the males do basically all of the competing. The females do basically all of the choosing. Um, now, that's not the case for our species. Uh, males um, and females compete for mates. Males may compete on average more fervently and more recklessly in some cases, uh, but nonetheless, it's not the case that one sex does it and the other doesn't. We're talking about a difference in the average level to which it's done. Likewise, with mate choice, it's not the case that females choose and males don't. Uh, both sexes have mate preferences, like especially in um, long-term relationships, both sexes are quite choosy about, about their long-term mates in particular. Um, now, what we argued was it wasn't exactly that evolutionary psychologists adopt the MCFC model and they're wrong to do so and we've got a whole new model that you've never thought of which is the mutual mate choice model. We weren't saying that. Um, instead our argument was a little subtler, it was basically that within the evolutionary psychology literature you get some sort of claims made that kind of fit in with the MCFC model. Males compete, females choose. Plenty of um, claims as well that fit with the MMC model, the, the mutual mate choice model. So plenty of claims about both sexes having uh, mate preferences, both sexes competing and that kind of thing. But you do get elements of both. And what we were pointing out was that, was first of all that fact, the fact that you do get both. Second, that those, those two uh, ways of construing human beings, sexual psychology, kind of conflict with each other. 
um, and there's a sort of unnoticed uh, contradiction in the evolutionary psych literature. Uh, and then finally, that the, the MMC approach, the mutual mate choice, um, is, is more accurate than the males compete, females choose approach. So that was, that was our argument. You do see the, so just to, I'll give you a few examples of, of the MCFC trend, just so it doesn't sound, so it's clear I'm not tilting it um, at windmills. So an example might be, uh, for instance, uh, in terms of sort of an overemphasis on female choice, mate choice, um, as, as opposed to male choice, there have been lots of studies that have looked at um, intelligence as a mating display and humor as a mating display uh, and MHC alleles and that kind of thing that have, that have only looked at female preferences for those traits in males and not the reverse. Okay. As if we were the kind of species where females are doing all the choosing and males are doing all the displaying. So that's a sort of a subtle indication that there's an MCFC uh, kind of view of our species operating in the background of people's thinking. Um, another example is a much stronger sort of um, emphasis on, on male competition among mates than among female competition. Um, you know, various people have addressed that, but, but there was sort of a gap in the literature that's been addressed. So, yeah, so that's what we argued. Um, yeah. Okay, okay. And thank you for clarifying, because perhaps I didn't phrase it really the correct way. So, um, okay. But, but uh, again, about uh, mating systems and human mating, uh, and human mating, is it really possible for us to say that humans have a preferred mating system, like, for example, monogamy, polygamy, polygyny, polyamory, or something like that. I mean, is there really a mating system that tends to be preferred by humans, or, the, uh, or does it really vary so much that we can't really say that humans prefer monogamy or polygamy, for example? That's a good question, and I think probably the answer is somewhere in between those two options. So um, I think, I guess the first thing to say would be um, that there certainly is a lot of variation. So there's no, it's not the case that there's a one true mating system for our species and uh, that anything else that we do is sort of a deviation from the true evolutionary path. I think we engage in all, all sorts of uh, mating-related behaviors, all the ones you named, uh, pair bonding, and polygyny, and uh, sort of Casual mating, I think, probably the three most common. Um, people engage in all of, all of those things. I think all of them come fairly naturally to our species. Um, I would say, in a way, I, I guess the way I prefer to think about it is that mating systems um, are relatively indirect products of, of natural selection. Um, the more direct products of, of natural selection are, are sort of psychological dispositions. So like that we have a capacity to fall in love with, with one another. We have a capacity to, um, to feel jealous if, if other individuals get involved with the person that we're in love with. Uh, we have a capacity, if kids come along, uh, both sexes have a capacity to, to love those kids, to want to care for them. Um, we also have uh, a desire though, for sexual variety. You know, both sexes do, stronger on average in males, but there's also that. Um, and we have various different sort of mate preferences as well that differ somewhat between the sexes. And so, and those things are relatively directly, I would say, products of, of natural selection. And then we kind of culturally build um, mating systems around those preferences. So like I say, so we fall in love, we get jealous, we look, we'd love to look after our kids. So one common mating system that we sort of end up with is relatively uh, 
relatively durable pair bonds, which are sort of largely exclusive, or they're supposed to be because of this whole jealousy issue, um, and where if kids come along, uh, you get by parental care of the young. Um, on the other hand, though, we don't necessarily organise things that way. We also have this desire for sexual variety, um, and so sometimes we can engage in, in casual mating. Um, males, more than females, have an interest in multiple partners. Females, more than males, have an interest in sort of snagging like a high-status uh, partner. So for that reason, another option that works uh, for some people in some cultures uh, is polygynous mating. So you have so one male with uh, more than one uh, female in a, in a long-term relationship. And all those things, um, like, like none of them perfect, like like all of these different things um, stress people out. They have their, their, their own problems. Um, that's the case for all of them. But I think all of them come pretty naturally to us um, and to some degree fit quite well with our evolved sexual psychology and, and um, parental psychology. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, and uh, talking about that also, uh, I guess that another interesting question here, uh, and since we've been talking about biology and culture as well, is the question about evolutionary mismatch, that is, perhaps how we nowadays particularly live in environments that we ourselves created, that perhaps uh, are not, uh, we are not really adapted to, or at least we are adapted to certain aspects of them and not others. So would you say that it would be possible that nowadays we are exposed to uh, novel environmental pressures that we didn't really were exposed to during most of our evolutionary history and that those uh, pressures or environmental cues uh, trigger uh, uh, behaviors that were not really part of our repertoire during most of our history. Most of our, yeah, I think that's definitely the case, yeah. I think. Um Probably every day, probably uh, if I made a list of all the stuff I've done today, I've done all sorts of things and I've thought about all sorts that are evolutionarily novel. You know? um, so my, my brain evolved in a certain uh, uh, context, uh, not my brain in particular, but the, the brain that I have is, um, as a member of the species, evolved in a certain context. We're not in that context uh, uh, anymore, and yet our, our brain you know, typically does a fairly good job of dealing with these novel things. So I guess when, you know, when we worry about climate change, we're doing something with our brains that they weren't specifically evolved to do. Uh, when we, when we uh, donate to charities to help folks we've never met on the other side of the planet, uh, we're doing something that our brains didn't specifically evolve uh, to do. When we, when we worry about AI, uh, the lights coming on for AI and, and, and taking over the world and whatever else, these are all sort of evolutionary novel problems and evolutionary novel things to think about. Um, and I think a lot of our lives are consumed with these things. Mm -hmm. But do you think that, for example, if we were to bring someone who was part of, for example, an hunter-gatherer society into one of our modern industrial uh, scientific societies, that, uh, okay, how should I say it, that perhaps the set of behaviors that were part of the repertoire of that person innately, that when that person were to be exposed to our environmental cues, that she would be able, she would have something in her that would trigger 
behaviors that are similar to ours? I, I'm not. I'm not sure if I'm being clear here or not. No, I think I know what you mean, and I think the answer is yes. Um, you know, I think that that is the case. I think that we're you know approximately the same animal that we were back then, but just in a different environment. Um, and I think you know, especially if that individual were brought up in our culture, um, they were they would just learn to. Uh, deal with the same kind of things that we're dealing with because um, after all a lot of these things that we are dealing with um, are really really recent and so um, the, you know there's no way that we're, we're innately equipped to deal with them specifically you know we must be innately deal, um, able to deal with them in a very general sense um, but you know those examples I gave you like thinking about AI risk and, and, and global warming and the like that those are very very novel so there's there's no specific innate contribution to our ability to to deal with those things. Mm -hmm. Yes, but even those things like climate change and AIDS and other things like that, I mean, we only are able to properly think about them or process those kinds of information because we have something that is innate to us cognitively that really permits that uh, to us for, uh, to, for us to process that kind of information in those ways, right? Well, I think so, yes. So, uh, our, our capacity for language uh, and that kind of thing, which is why, you know, human beings can think about these evolutionary novel things, whereas chimpanzees cannot and orangutans cannot and cats and dogs can't. Mm -hmm. That sort of capacity for abstract cognition and our cultural capacity. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so since another big topic of your work and particularly of your first book was also religion and the relationship between religion and science and things like that, um, I mean, religion seems to be a fairly complex human phenomenon that has biological aspects and also cultural aspects to it. So. Uh, how would you say we should approach the study of religion? Of religion, yeah. Um, I think I view it as sort of, I guess, primarily a cultural phenomenon uh, in the sense, especially if you're looking at the specifics. So in the sense, for instance, uh, that if you were to take uh, an individual who had, say, Hindu parents and raise them as a Catholic, they're going to they're not going to be a Hindu, right? So they're going to be a Catholic. They're going to, um, they're going to end up believing in one God rather than 300,000. They're going to end up believing and, and, and praying to Jesus instead of Brahma, Vishnu, and, and Shiva. So the, the level of specific beliefs, you know, it clearly is a product of uh, culture primarily. Um, and, and I think that's important because the, the specific beliefs are very, very important to people. Um, now, if there's any innate contribution, it would have to be something quite general much more general than these specific religious beliefs that do, do matter quite a bit to people. And I'm not 100% sure, I haven't yet been convinced of, of what that innate religious uh, trait might be and why it's specifically religious rather than maybe something more, more general and broad, like a, a more sort of general uh, need to have, just, just to hold beliefs about the world or to have um, systems of meaning or, or whatever. Um, so I think it's yeah, primarily a cultural phenomenon. Um, the way, the way I look at it in the book, um, I think, so, so a common question is, what's religion for? Like, what's its function? And I think there's no easy answer to that, because I think really it's just a big, it's kind of a big mess. So different religions are just a big 
conglomeration of all sorts of uh, interacting forces that the sort of net outcome of tons of different things happening uh, all over the place. So in some cases, you have certain aspects of religion that are good for the individual. So like it's often said that religion is a product of wishful thinking. Um, so it, it contains beliefs that help people through the tough times. Um, help them press on when things are not going well. If, uh, if a loved one dies, for instance, they can think, well, I'm going to see that, that person, that individual again. So probably a product of wishful thinking. Then on the other hand, you have elements of religion that are the obvious thinking. There's a lot of stuff in religion that's, that's not nice at all. A belief in hell, for instance, is a, is a, a good example of this. It's a very, um, it's not what you would wish to be true at all. Well, maybe maybe people would wish hell to exist for their enemies. But for, for oneself and for, for one's loved ones, the last thing you want to think is true is hell. So that couldn't have that function. Various ideas about the kind of function that could have, uh, sort of like a social control mechanism. People, uh, in exactly the same way that people say, if you behave badly, Santa Claus is not going to give you any, any presents this year. They could do a similar thing. If you behave badly, you're going to end up going to hell. Uh, so social control comes in there, I think. Um, I think some aspects of religion are, are good for the group as a whole. I think uh, Aaron Noren Zion has made, a, I think, a good case um, that the belief in, in big gods, so so gods that keep an eye on people, keep a watchful eye on people, um, look at what they're doing, judge them morally, like that was a good action, that was a, that was a bad action, and then reward or punish them in response to these behaviours. Um, he argues, a few other folks have argued the same thing, that that belief spread through, through cultural group selection and that it's, it's kind of good for the group. It helps galvanize groups that are larger than 100 or 200 people. 100 or 200 people, we don't really need to believe in big gods or, or have CCTV cameras or any of those kind of things. They have socially cohesive groups. When groups start getting bigger, though, you need something, some kind of cultural glue uh, that helps knit groups together. And, and the argument is that big gods are one example of that. So, yeah, so you get some, some stuff that's good for the individual, some stuff that's good for the group. I think also, though, you do just get a lot of stuff where you have to turn to the, the meme idea. There's a whole bunch of stuff in, in religions that I don't think you can plausibly argue. It's a bit of a stretch to argue that it's good for the individual or the group um, or subgroups or whatever. Things, for instance, like, uh, you know, folks, folks who take a vow of celibacy and devote their entire lives to spreading the word. I think that that's probably, it's good for the word. It's better for the word than it is for them. It's um, it's helping uh, the religious beliefs propagate themselves um, much more than it's helping them or, or necessarily helping the group. Um, similar argu argument could be made uh, for for martyrdom. Um, yeah, lots of things like that. I think the aspects of religion that are just like the equivalent of earworms. They're sort of catchy memes that just propagate themselves independently of whether they're good or bad for us. And, and that's what religion is, I think, just a big conglomeration of of all these different things with all these different uh, functions. Mm -hmm. Do you think that in the specific case of celibacy that it would be possible that people who are celibates would gain something in terms of inclusive fitness if they were to... Uh, dismiss their own reproductive success and perhaps invest in other people that are genetically related to them. Yeah, so it could enhance uh, indirect fitness. I think it's possible, but I think you'd have to do a lot of work to make the case that that, is, that has actually evolved. I mean, for a start, it's a very rare phenomenon. So I think it's Im implausible to suggest that it's something that we've specifically evolved to do. Um, 
uh, yeah, so I think, yeah, it's quite unlikely because um, it's so rare. And you'd also have to make the case, if you were to go down that path, you'd have to make the case that folks who do that, that take a vow of, of celibacy and, and help close relatives to have kin, that that would be a, a better option than, than having offspring of their own. And that's a, that's a bit of a hard sell um, because, you know, usually your best way to enhance your inclusive fitness in our species is to have offspring of your own. Uh, and then finally, you'd have to look at what they actually spend their time doing. And I think when they become celibate, I think like celibate monks and that kind of thing, um, I imagine that they, they don't spend all their time looking after close relatives. I imagine that a lot of the activities that they get involved with are religious activities that do a lot more to, to promote the religion than to help their close kin have, have offspring. So, so possible, yes, but I think probably it's not the case. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the innate aspects of religion, uh, would you agree with the approach that some people have as to uh, religion being a byproduct of several different adaptations of our mind? Like, for example, uh, core knowledge that includes theory of mind, folk physics, folk biology, uh, and also our uh, teleological thinking and our hyperactive agent detection device and a lot of other stuff like that. Yeah, I think that that's the kind of approach I think uh, is best. Um, I think that you know religious memes do emerge out of out of human nature and they have to mesh with human nature. And and that list that you gave, those are the kind of things, the kind of aspects of human nature that that give rise to religious thoughts. And and religious thoughts, why do they spread? Because they mesh quite nicely with those aspects of human nature. You know, our ten- tendency to anthropomorphize. Um, hyperactive agency detection uh, system. I, I probably think of that just in terms of, of just theory of mind. It's not something separate from theory of mind, but just our tendency to overextend theory of mind and sort of trying to explain events in the natural world and, and things like that come out of um, just, we just more naturally gravitate toward explaining it in terms of agents like ourselves doing things deliberately with, with goals in mind. Um, I think also just our intelligence and our, our abstract understanding um, opens the door to religion for us in a way that it doesn't for other animals. Just because we have this ability to think thoughts like, you know, what are we doing here? What, why are we here? Why is there something rather than nothing, etc.? And so we have, these, we have these questions that other animals don't have, so that they don't need the answers for them. But we ask these questions and then we have a gap and we try to fill in that gap with, in various different kind of ways, including with religious answers. Mm-hmm. Okay, so just one last question. We've been talking a lot about biology and culture and the relationship between them and also gene culture coevolution. But at a certain point in your book, uh, The Ape That Understood the Universe, you say that a culture might influence our behavior a bit, but it never conjures things up, nor is the origin of them. So c- could we just end up with you uh, explaining a little bit more what you mean by that? Uh, sure. Well, actually, no, I do think that the culture does have quite a big impact us, uh, on us in a lot of, a lot of areas. Um, so what I mean, like a few places in the book, I, I talk about that. I talk about how certain things are not conjured up out of nothing uh, by culture. I didn't, didn't so much mean that as just a general statement about every single domain of culture. Right. I meant more about the specific things like specific sex differences, um, for instance, um, specific tendencies like our tendency to favor kin over non-kin and close kin over more distant kin. 
So those in those particular cases, I guess I really just meant that it's not all down to culture. So it's not the case that there's no innate push at all within those domains and that it all is just conjured up out of nothing by culture. Um, I was sort of just arguing that because of all the evidence that suggests that there is an innate contribution that we have to conclude that, you know, it's, it's partly it's influenced by nurture, but that nurture doesn't invent it just out of, out of thin air. Mm -hmm. Okay, very well. Okay, so Dr. Stuart Williams, just before we go, apart from your books, for which I will be leaving links in the description box of the video, is there, are there any good places on the internet if people want to get in touch with more of your work? Uh, yep, I, I'll name two. So I have a, a web page that I, I um, tend to keep up to date. Not sure if it is at the moment, but but that's I believe that's Steve SteveStuartWilliams.com. So Steve Stuart Williams, no full stops or anything between them. We'll just run on. Um, and the other place would be uh, would be Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Steve Stu Will. Uh, S T E V E S T U W I L L. At Steve mm -hmm. Stu Will. Okay, so I will include that in the description box of this interview. And so, Dr. Stuart Williams, thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. It was really an interesting conversation. Yeah, thanks very much for inviting me again. And, and thanks, I really enjoyed the, I enjoyed the conversation as well. Hi guys, thank you a lot for watching this interview until the end. I'm recording a new ending just to let you know a couple of new things, but I mean I've started this channel in February 2018 and I've been putting out a lot of interviews with academics and intellectuals. So to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. And if you don't like Patreon or prefer other platforms, you can also have you can also go to PayPal and subscribe from $1 to $20. I have all of those options in the description box of the video. And you can also make a one-time donation on PayPal. And also you can go to Subscribestar uh, and pledge an, any amount there. So uh, you have all of those options to support the channel. And so before I go, I would like to give a huge thank you to my patrons, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perel Galarsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelinas, Jim Frank, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Brian Rivera, and... I'm very proud of this. My first producer is our web. Thank you for all.